0: Well good morning. It's wonderful to be with you and I bring greetings from the whole Ashy family, Julie and Carol and Jake and uh, Kirsten and Megan. Uh, This morning Julie and Carol are with Megan, our youngest. She has become a student leader in the student ministries at Mountain Park Baptist Church and heading off to college on Thursday so they're saying goodbye to all of their student leaders and uh, blessing them, so uh, that's where they are this morning. Our daughter, uh, Kirsten, is the youth pastor uh, at Christ Church Anglican in Buckhead, and uh, she brings greetings to you all from there. And our son, Jake, is uh, up at a church called Missio Day uh, in Wrigleyville in Chicago, uh, where he serves on the worship team and ministers in, as a leader in young life, with middle school kids so actually it's uh, appropriately called wildlife and uh, he is just loving it so we're all in different parts of the same vineyard but we bring you blessings and greetings one and all this morning I want to talk about the passage we read in Hebrews so if you'd like to follow along you can open your Bibles to page 1007 which is the 11th chapter of Hebrews And I'm going to kind of circle back to this one verse, verse 16, where it says, but as it is, they desired a better country. Uh, Did those words jump out at you like they did to me? Especially in this election season where civil discourse over issues has given way to name-calling where unrest and despair have led to violence on all sides and where we can't seem to get a straight answer to the questions that we are asking from anybody. I'm deeply distressed at the direction our culture and our country are heading. How about you? You had enough? You desire a better country? Well, my mission in the American Anglican Council is to go all over the world but mostly here in uh, North America, and, and make sure that our churches are invading culture and not the other way around. Okay? And I've had a chance to look at Western culture both at it as it is practiced here in North America and as it is being actively exported by some churches to Africa and other places and England. And let me tell you Uh, Let me just cut to the chase, what I see personally as the, the major problems going on in Western culture. The first is a philosophical mindset we might call solipsism, which is the technical way of saying you can't know anything other than yourself. There's no absolute truth or absolute point of reference out there. You can't know it. All you can know is what you define as truth. And so, Justice Anthony Kennedy in Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which expanded the role of uh, the right of abortion all across America, said the essence of liberty is uh, the sweet right uh, of every individual to define reality as he or, uh, or she sees it. Did you catch that? Our Supreme Court is saying... Liberty is your right to define reality any way you think. Now the second problem follows on the first, which is what we would call terminal narcissism. The excessive and often erotic preoccupation in love with yourself and your desires, even if it kills you. And when you have, as the fundamental philosophical default, terminal selfishness and add to that the, 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 the moral right to do anything you want as a matter of terminal narcissism, you're in a pretty bad place. And in Romans 1, verses 18 through, 20, 18 through 32, Paul says things don't end up very well if you follow that line of thinking. He says when people do that, when they engage in terminal selfishness and terminal narcissism, God decides to step away and allow their minds to get darkened, to exchange the truth for a lie, as they have, and, and then to use their bodies in ways that were they were never intended to be used to en- engage in sexual immorality and to invent all kinds of evil, violence, and degradation. And if you look at Romans 1, 18 through 32, you will see in it a catalog of everything that's going on in Western culture. Okay? That's the bad news. What I want to ask this morning is the following question. What are we supposed to do, church, in the face of a culture that has surrendered to philosophical and moral relativism where there are no absolute truths beyond the self and its desires? When there is lawlessness, corruption, violence, sexual immorality, and oppression by those who have the power to enforce their own desires. What do we do? Well, there's a tendency just to want to circle our wagons and just throw in the towel and say, I, I, I don't know what to do. I just, I just surrender. But look in page 1007 in that uh, last couple of verses in Hebrews 10 before we start the lesson today. Listen what, what the author says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Does that sound familiar? Look down a little further. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Does that sound familiar, Episcopalians, now Anglicans? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And down to verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We do not shrink back in the face of a sick culture and a disintegrating civilization. In chapter 11, we read this morning in in Hebrews As a result of these heroes of the faith, three reasons I would suggest why we have confidence to do God's will under tremendous opposition and why we cannot and must not shrink back. Number one, we have confidence because we, by faith in Christ, already receive a better country. We already have it, a heavenly city which is our true home. Number two, we have a confidence because God will allow that heavenly city from time to time to touch our secular cities and remind us of a life that is so much greater. And number three, until that heavenly city comes down for the final time, We have a faith that can and will impact the culture around us and lead others to Christ. So let me just unpack each one of those in turn. Number one, we have confidence because we've already received a better country, a heavenly city which is our true home. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 down at verses 9 through 10. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, when the Hebrew patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were in that real estate that God gave them, they didn't decide, okay, let's go ahead and start building some cities. Let's build some homes. Let's use our hands. Now they lived as aliens and sojourners in the real estate God gave them because they knew that God had a gift so much better in mind for them, a city with foundations whose designer and builder is God himself. And so Hebrews goes on in verses 14 and 15 to say, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Abraham had a confidence that made him confess, I really belong to another place. I'm an alien and a stranger here. God the Father has promised me a true home, a better country, a heavenly one. One day I will have it. Can we say amen to that? We're going to heaven. But until then, I will welcome it from afar. And that's the faith conviction that was passed on from patriarch to patriarch, from father to son. And see, here's the good news. The good news isn't a land deal. It isn't a closing. It's a conviction that you and I belong to another place, a place Jesus himself calls my Father's house, a place that has many rooms. And like Abraham, our homeland is not here on this terra firma. Our citizenship is not in America. As followers of Jesus, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. That's right. Our home is in heaven. We have a better country. It's called the kingdom of God where what God wants done is done. And you can read about what that kingdom looks like at the very end of this wonderful book. In Revelations 29, verses 3 and 4, where it says, And God himself will dwell with us. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. No more drive-by shootings. No more apartment buildings burning down. No more suicide bombings. The old order has passed away. No more pain. No more suffering. What a wonderful city that will be. And what a wonderful day that will be. But do you notice where it says in verse 13? It says all of the Old Testament heroes in this hall of faith never received the promise that they were waiting for that better country. When they died, they only saw that better country and they saluted it, literally they hailed it from afar. Not so with you and me. If you keep your finger right there in Hebrews 11 and move over one chapter to Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23 listen what it says. It says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you notice the the verb tense there? You have come to that heavenly home. You who are under the blood of Jesus Christ in that new covenant. And because of that perfect blood that was shed for us once and for all, we actually have access to that city, the city of God, that heavenly place, that heavenly country. And at the end of Hebrews 11, the author sums it up. He says God's perfect plan was to add those Old Testament church, those Old Testament saints, cause them to wait until the church should be born and add them to us so that they too could enter into that covenant. They saw it from afar. We have access to it now, right now. And yet, we know that the heavenly Jerusalem has not yet fully arrived. We live in desperate times and sometimes the times get the better of us and so I'm reminded of one of my favorite songs by Laura Story who reminds us that when friends betray us when darkness seems to win we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not this is not our home and so in faith we look at evil suffering violence and degradation we remember that this earth is not our home but we don't stop there we respond by looking back at God's promise of a better country, a heavenly city whose foundations God himself has laid, and until the final fulfillment of his promise, we remember that there's a connection between that heavenly city, the city of God, and the city of man, the cities that we live in. And that brings up the second point, and that is we have confidence because God will allow his heavenly city to touch our earthly cities from time to time to give people a taste of heaven. And that happens when there's revival. It happens in the most hostile places when God's people are faithful. Think of Genesis 14, when uh, there was a terrible invasion from pagan armies, and there was Abraham in Canaan, and it was Abraham who, who God used to turn that invasion back and rescue his pagan neighbors. Think of Joseph in the second half of Genesis. Genesis in pagan Egypt whom God used his wisdom to store up grain in the middle of a famine-wracked Egypt. Think about when God's people do what it says in 2 Chronicles 7, when they humble themselves and pray and seek his face, God promises he'll heal our land. Think of what happened to that earthly Jerusalem when King Josiah, the great king, did exactly that. And Jerusalem experienced a period of prosperity unknown under any other king. Think about that wonderful Pentecost day when the heavenly Jerusalem touched the the earthly Jerusalem and people came together and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and it says they gathered together and they did all the things we would expect people to do in church, study the Bible, fellowship, pray, break bread. But it says more than that. It says that because they were given the Holy Spirit, they had apparently such sacrificial generosity that they shared their stuff so that no one had need. And they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And revivals like that went on and continue to go on in history. I was looking at one I was reminded of, the Welsh revival at the turn of the 20th century. And I went to look up you know, online, what the results of that revival were. Do you know that revival went on for years? Some people got together, they prayed, and they prayed powerfully, and the Holy Spirit came down. It says, and this is a conservative estimate, so it's a lowball, 150,000 people in Wales came to Christ because of that revival. 150,000. It says that the police... The only thing they ended up doing for most of their beat was escorting people doing traffic control from church to home because crime dropped dramatically. Judges came into court and they didn't have anything to try. Their dockets were empty. It says that workers produced better quality goods. Labor unions, trade unions, their disputes were settled disputes between communities were settled. Fathers, it said, stopped spending and wasting the family's money at the pub, and as a result, they came home. And the quality of family life and family income rose. That's revival. And it went on for so many years that even the Prime Minister of England, Lloyd George, took notice of it publicly and said, even government is getting better in Wales. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, it didn't last. I've been to Wales a few times the last couple of years, and they need a new revival, much as we do. And I wonder if God doesn't give us revival for a temporary and fleeting time to remind us that our faith needs to be in Him and not in the results of the revival and not in those signs and wonders. And so when we realize that God wants to give us a taste of heaven, we pray. We realize that someday that heavenly city, our true home, will come down and displace the cities of the world for one last time. It will come from outside from heaven like that small stone in Daniel chapter 2 that's not cut by human hands but by God himself. It comes to all of the secular kingdoms built on earth by human hands that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in that dream, one upon the other, but this little stone that was not cut by human hands but must have been cut by the hand of God falls at the feet of that great statue and obliterates all of those kingdoms. And then it says, it grows. As the dust of them blows away, it grows and fills the whole earth. Someday that will happen. But until that happens, and here's the final point, we have confidence because we have a faith that can and will impact the culture around us and lead others to Christ. As Christians, we have a faith that never gives in to despair or violence. Perish the thought. We have a faith that never gives in to despair because we've tasted heaven and we're on the way to it. We have a confidence and a hope that's contagious because we know that there's so much more to this life than ourselves and our own petty desires. We have a God whose power working in us can do infinitely more right now than we can ever ask or imagine. We have a faith that has eyes to see and discern what is lasting and what is not. Eyes of faith like the patriarchs and heroes we read about in Hebrews 11. Eyes that do not merely anticipate heaven and the coming of that heavenly city, Jerusalem. But eyes that see the emptiness and perishability of so much of what passes as life on earth, eyes of faith that see that far off city and country and say to those around us, come higher, friend. Come and see the kind of life you can have now in Christ Jesus. We have a faith that has a word of hope and encouragement that this earth is not our final home. It's simply a shadow of that better country that lies ahead. A mere dress rehearsal for the real thing. We have a confession to make that we're strangers and foreigners passing through and that on our way, God has called us in this pilgrim faith to share the vision of what life could be on the way. A life of following Jesus that is so rich in relationships, so deep and real with purpose and significance and sacrificial generosity that will bless the people around you. And yes, we have a faith that comes with a vision. We have a faith that can actually speak into our secular culture and say there actually is a common good. It's found in that book, the Bible, God's Word. It's based on tried and true principles and values that we see written in the Bible. And yes, it is an objective reference point. And you don't have to be captive to your own personal desires and pettiness. What, would, could, what could we do and what would it look like if with access to that heavenly city we shared it with others? You know, two, two weeks ago, I had a, a chance to experience that taste of heaven in my own town in Lilburn, just down the road. There's two pastors one who's Anglo and one who's African-American, Baptist and Pentecostal. And they've gotten together and they brought all the pastors in the town together, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, and they've been praying all around Lilburn and Stone Mountain for revival. And this particular one I was invited to, uh, they said, come to Lilburn City Park. And I thought, well, you know, is it going to be three hours of, of singing and worship? or I, I don't know. So we went. And I walked in the park, and there were three police officers there who stayed for a while, but when they saw that the two to 300 people, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, were loving on each other, kids playing together, and people praying together, they just walked back to the police station. Pastor after pastor got up. Different backgrounds, denominations, races. Some of them spoke in English, some of them spoke in French and Spanish. And but you know what they did? They prayed for the city. They prayed for each other. They prayed for the churches. They prayed for the mayor. They prayed for city council. They prayed for the police chief and the police officers and the people who've been unjustly targeted. And then what was great is that young pastor got up and and said, as the closing prayer, he said, you know, I've just been grieved by all of these police shootings and the racial divisions in our country and the violence. And uh, I went up to uh, another pastor in church who's African-American. And I said, I'm just grieved by this. Do do I need to start talking, you know, with African-American people? And this African-American pastor said, yeah, why don't you start with me? And so they spent some time walking around and talking with each other. And he got up and said, you know, it's not just good enough for us to pray all these things. Pray for the violence to cease. Pray identificational repentance for the Native Americans who followed the trail of tears through Lilburn. It's not good enough just to pray. We need to talk with each other. We need to be the taste of heaven. And so I challenge each of you to talk with someone in a group that you don't know. And I got invited to the pastor's group and I had an African-American pastor on either side of me. And when we were done praying all these things, I turned in a place of conviction to to the pastor next to me and said, you know, I'm really sorry for the way that young black men have been unjustly targeted and treated so many times. And he turned to me and said, you know what, I want to confess the anger of our people that has been turned against people who have no responsibility for the things in the past, and that we need to stop the violence too. And that was a taste of heaven, wasn't it? It was God's church, being God's church, and modeling for our society what we need to do. And so as I think about this election, I have to say i have the foggiest idea who's gonna win. All I know is whoever wins, they're gonna inherit a mess. And what I want to say to the church this morning is the question is not what are you going to do about it, Mr. President or whoever. The question is, church, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do to open the doors of our communities and our cities for a taste of heaven? What are we going to do to open opportunities for people to receive Jesus? What are we going to do to open doors to allow God's kingdom to invade our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our friendships, our relationships, our cities? What are we going to do to invite the kingdom of God to change our land so that it becomes a place where what God wants done is done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to make it so by the power of your Holy Spirit. We are desperate. We need a, a revival in this land. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to use this church and others all over the land to be your pilgrim people who have access to that city whose foundations are designed and built by the Father himself. And to open doors to that city. Doors of hope, doors of vision, doors of holiness. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.